Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Mormonism has always provoked a lot of questions. It's relatively young for a religion. Its adherents at times have a reputation for being closed off or secretive, but on the other hand, their missionary work is one of the most well-known things about them. Polygamy was once a major part of their faith, though officially that hasn't been true for well over a century. So what is Mormonism, and how did it manage to grow from one man's vision to a community of over 15 million members? Let's begin. Okay, I'm here on HI101 with Gary Hallman. Hello. How's it going? It's going good. That's good. We're here today to talk about Mormonism. Yeah. I'm very excited to do this one, actually. Yeah, me too. We um we agreed to do this one the last time you were on the show, actually. Yeah, I feel, on... I feel like this is a good segue from what we were talking about last time. Like, there's a lot of common themes in it, I think. Yeah, actually on tape, which is kind of weird. Yeah. I, I think that's the first time that's ever happened. So. Oh, well, there, there you, you go. go. You know, it, it's one of those things that I think everyone's a little bit curious about, like, what the whole deal is there. Yeah, especially since the Book of Mormon came out. That's been a big force. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But I think a lot of people don't really take the time to look into it at all. No, not at all. Uh, it's it's just, it's so, it's so strange. And, and sometimes it seems like it's a little bit hard to get information. And, you know, I, th- I think a lot of people kind of end at the the point of curiosity rather than yeah. You know, extra information. So uh, this, I mean, this is a, this is a history show, not a theology show. So we're not going to like get too deep down <laughs> in it. I actually wanted to start by talking about like how we talk about something like a religious movement in history. Cause I think it's important for something like this. A lot of the stuff that we've talked about previously, you could almost call it easier to talk about in terms of just like, these are people who live 500 years ago. Well, and... yeah, most, most of the people are, are dead. Like, you know, you talk about, some of these more ancient religions well nobody's still practicing them today so it's not quite as taboo to talk about it right and you know you're not gonna for example you're not gonna necessarily uh insult any catholics by pointing out that there were crazy corrupt you know borgia popes that were in there that were you know there entirely for the power and the and the and the wealth and all of that i mean that's just a it's a thing that happened and that's a different that's a different era and Mm. you know no skin off their backs right like they're not gonna argue with you that's yeah, just the thing well, that I mean, especially Mormonism, it's it's so young compared to everything else. Absolutely, and I think that's like there's there's just there's an interesting history, but it doesn't quite have the same arm's length distance when you're talking about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it, and it's also recent that you do need to be a little bit careful in in that you know everything that we're going to talk about today is part of a very vibrant, ongoing 
faith that's a major part of millions of people's lives. Yeah, so growing like crazy. You kind of have to be a little bit careful. And it doesn't mean that we need to pull any punches in terms of, you know, historical fact or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But we do kind of need to be aware of the fact that it's not really history's place to pass judgment on any of these belief sets or, you know, speak to, you know, specifically theological concerns in any of this stuff. It's fine to talk about that stuff insofar as it is important in understanding the the people who practice that faith and how it affected their lives and uh, and the history of the entire movement. But, you know, we're we're not here to, you know, to to debate theology or anything like that necessarily. And so you kind of have to do this weird like I I don't I don't like using objectivity necessarily because i think it's a bit of a disingenuous well, it's, it's concept almost impossible. In like we're we're looking back on these events yeah with a skewed lens but you know certainly it's our intention to be as objective as possible i think i think rather than objective i think a better word might be fair okay yeah because yeah like i said i don't i don't much like objectivity as a as a concept in history because i i, I think it's disingenuous and really all you're doing at that point is like burying your bias as deeply as you can rather than kind of being upfront about saying, you know, well, I think this about this, I think that about this, Mm -hmm. and allowing people to do with your bias what they will, right? Yeah. um, But fairness is important. Sure. And and I think that's a slightly different concept. I know it's a little bit picky, but I I think you can have an opinion about something and still be fair-minded about all aspects of it. Mm -hmm. So it is a really tricky thing to talk about more recent religious history, though. You got to be got to be a little bit careful all right well let's let's get into it let's get right into it and we're going to start by talking about sort of the wider context in which mormonism starts which is a movement called the second great awakening there was a first great awakening that's you know why we have a second one that was you know the 1730s 1740s where you get a little bit of a focus on evangelism in uh, in protestantism in in europe and a little bit in the u.s Okay. Um, but, you know, it, it wasn't nearly as, as culturally impactful as the Second Great Awakening was. And when we talk about Second Great Awakening, we're talking anywhere between 1790 and 1860 or so. And this is what's kind of known as the Romantic period in Europe. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of stuff happening at this point in time, which is a reaction to rationalism and to sort of liberal thought, things like that, where... The general trend in in religions at this point in time was uh, a revitalization of like a very personal uh, version of Protestantism, where things like ecstatic worship and just like your emotional response to preaching, uh, a lot of sort of supernatural elements kind of coming into play. Speaking in tongues, that kind of thing. Handling snakes, all of that stuff. Handling snakes? Yeah, you've never heard of handling snakes. No. There's a line in the Bible. What? Why would people do that? That there's, seems crazy. Well, because there's there's specifically a line in the Bible that says that, and, and I'm paraphrasing because I did not, I did not write it down. I wasn't, I wasn't expecting <laughs> okay. to talk about snake okay. handling, but it is fascinating. There's a line in the Bible about, you know, if you're blessed by God, you can handle poisonous snakes and no harm will come to you. Oh, that seems like a terrible idea. And yet there are many, many churches in the Southern United States where handling snakes is like a major part of their faith life. Do people still do this today? Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's an ongoing thing. Really? Yeah. That is interesting. Yep. And occasionally people get bitten and occasionally people die from it. It's, it's, it's very dangerous. That seems logical. But there's a, there's a passage right in there that's basically saying if you're faithful enough, this won't hurt you 
and so it they, they see it as a demonstration of their faith, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a it's an outward sign, and 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 through that sign they see see it's it very as very literal. Yeah, well, it's it's a form of it of evangelism, right? Like they're expressing their faith to the outside world, and it's 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 meant as like a sign to anyone who doesn't believe that, like, no, 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 what it says in the Bible, it's true. See, watch, I'm picking up this snake, and it's not biting me. So during this period of time, I can then surmise that like this is one of those instances where people are being drawn towards very like literal interpretations of biblical scripture. Yeah. There's a lot of like Bible first, like complete rejection of any sort of organized structure in religion. This is where you get the, um, the tent revivals. So you get these, you get these mainly Baptist or Methodist, especially Methodist ministers traveling from town to town and they'll, they'll rent out meeting halls or whatever the biggest building is in town, sometimes like the the town hall, mm-hmm. or they'll just set up these massive tents outside. And for days on end, every single night, there's like hours and hours of preaching. And it's very, again, very charismatic preaching, lots of speaking in tongues type demonstrations, mm-hmm. curing of the sick, uh, like, like faith healing. Okay. All of that stuff is happening. And it's going over really well in the United States. People love this stuff. And they get massive numbers of, of uh, converts out of this. And these, these movements aren't only a, a reaction against uh, the Enlightenment. There's, they're actually proactively doing a lot of things that we would recognize as very good socially. You know, these are, these are the people who are working at the forefront of um, the anti-slavery movement, for example. Okay. You know, but they also had a, a number of other sort of reform movement beliefs, things like uh, temperance, so yeah. abstinence from alcohol and any other drugs of any kind, any uh, mind-altering substances. So no no alcohol, no tobacco, some cases no uh, coffee even. There are you know even questions about too much sugar kind of thing. Like they're very, very strict about that stuff. Some of these denominations are even calling for like a larger role for women, both religious and social. So you get the very beginning of the women's suffrage movement at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Just the barest, you know, uh, glimmers of it, but it's there. And you get a lot of movements that we at least have heard of at this point. People like uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists okay. come out of this era. The Shakers, also this era. The Shakers. Yeah. And also a group called the the Millerites who are very like, yeah, you know okay. these guys? Yeah. Tell yeah. me about the Millerites. I've only heard about them briefly. Okay. Uh, I've heard the name. Yeah. Um, they believed that the world was going to end in, oh, I think it was the 1840s at some point. Are these the guys who keep like like renewing the date every time the day comes and passes? There are a number of groups that'll do that. But okay. Yeah, they, they kind of they started that whole thing. Off. They're like, whoa, we interpreted the scripture wrong. It's actually now, you know, it's going to be next year. Yeah, exactly. And during this era, there's this, this area in New York State, in the, basically the western third of New York State, that was known as the Burned Over District. And it was called this because there was no, no fuel left to burn, fuel being uh, non-converted people. They, they weren't being, there was no one left to kind of set on fire with, uh, with the, the passion of faith kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's burned out. There's no one there left to convert. And it was a major center of this sort of revival Christian faith. It was very, very popular there. I'll, I'll also mention that at this point in time, there was what some people will point to as like a feminization of Christianity, where it was kind of seen as the the wife's or mother's role in the family to 
kind of watch out for the moral well-being of everyone else in the family to make yeah. sure that the children are raised mothers what are your children doing kind yeah of exactly but yeah. also you know keep your husband in line it's not his fault that he's a dirtbag out out drinking every night you got to keep him in line huh yeah keep him home read him, read him the bible that's that's what you got to do as a wife that's what a good wife does okay um but really moving that responsibility off of the 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 head of the household as the, the father onto sort of like what, what you end up with is sort of sharing the, the the responsibility in the family right like the the father taking care of their earthly needs and the mother taking care of their spiritual needs but anyways this is the this is the world that the Mormons kind of come out of. They they come out of the same period, and actually the same area in New York. Okay. So, like, what is a Mormon? What does it mean to be Mormon? What makes Mormons different than other Christians? First off, I should point out uh, as early as possible that Mormon is not the preferred term. They prefer the the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter Day Saints, or LDS for short. Uh, Mormon used to actually be pejorative. They've kind of come around and embraced it at this point, and they're not going to get mad at you for using Mormon necessarily. Okay. But it's not the preferred. It's not the preferred term, but let's face it. I, I, I think they're so well known as, as Mormons outside of that community that I'm probably going to keep calling them that. And I would imagine you're probably going to keep calling them that too. So let's just acknowledge that it's it's maybe not the, the best term, but it is an acceptable one and uh, kind of move on from there. Yeah, That's until we can come up with a better acronym or something. Well, I mean, LDS is fine, but it's just a little it's it's a little clunky and I don't think is well known. Nope, definitely not. The first one that is like super important to Mormonism, very very key is something known as the great apostasy. And apostasy just means like turning away from religious beliefs. And according to the Mormons, all churches did this basically right after Jesus and the 12 apostles died. Basically, as soon as the original 12 are gone, yeah, people started, number one, leaving out kind of difficult beliefs or disadvantageous beliefs to them. Number two, changing translations of the Bible. Mm-hmm. And number three, turning the church into a method for personal gain, basically as quickly as possible. Profiteering. Profiteering. Yeah. And that there was essentially no valid earthly church after... About, you know, let's call it about the year 80 or so. Yeah, because I remember hearing a lot about how with a lot of these new romantic splinter groups, like the issue of money and its corruption with the church was a big issue for them. And you can understand why. I mean, that was a big issue for the Reformation in the 16th century as well with the whole... Well, you could you could easily argue that it's never stopped being a big issue. Like, let's look at the Catholic fair. Church today. It's yep. It's still an issue. Sure. No, and, and it's, you know, any any organization that gets that big gets oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, corruption problems, right? But yeah, they they were they were all about the keeping the, the money out of things. But like specifically they weren't they weren't even just about like reforming what was existing. They said there hasn't been a valid church on earth since like for for seventeen hundred years. And they believed that the Mormon church was uh the answer to that. It was the it was the uh return of the church to earth. Okay. So, I, I mean, what new charismatic religion isn't going to say that they're the only true one, but, you know. That they've, it, you know, we have figured it out. But it is very important to, to the faith to, to understand that. The next one is that they have what's known as an open canon, which is in contrast to the closed canon of most Christian denominations, which is what goes in the Bible. 
right? The the Bible's pretty much set at this point. And I mean, different denominations do use slightly different, different versions. versions. There King are some James books versus yeah. Well, yeah. not even not even the translation version, but like there are certain books that are included in certain denominations' Bibles that are left out of others. Yeah. Um. The you know the Bible is is a very tricky term because there isn't exactly just one bible even uh uh moving between lutheranism to uh you know f- to a presbyterian bible for example they'll they'll be slightly different but the the mormons actually have uh, a fairly expanded canon and they consider it still a living work okay because you know jumping ahead slightly they believe in the continued direct revelation from god to the the heads of their their church they believe that that's not a thing that just kind of stopped happening yeah they have a constant line of communication to god absolutely and so what this means is they have the the bible as we would think of it think of it for any traditional christian denomination uh they prefer the king james version uh they believe it's the least corrupted translation they they have they have a lot of issues with translation Mm -hmm. in general um they they believe that the more people get their hands on things the the further from the the true version it gets which seems logical i mean it doesn't it doesn't i mean you the problem with the king james version at this point is that it's uh it's archaic english right and yeah. so in terms of just understandability updating that that translation like modernizing the the actual language not even the like the words but just like the grammar oh. of it makes some sense you know what that's that's so funny uh I mean, you can see why it's controversial, though. Like, my uh, fun little side story. So my grandmother bought me, like, a young, like, a youth Bible that was, like, the Bible translated into, like, street lingo for kids in the 90s. Wow. And it is so inappropriate. Really? Like, I've saved this book and I was going through it. I was like, man, this would really offend a lot of people. You have to show me this sometime. It is amazing. I'm so curious. I was... yeah, while we're continuing with this, this little side story, I was reading recently uh, an article about pigeon Bibles. Uh, okay. Pigeon, P-I-D-G-I-N, right? Like it's a it's a, a dialect, I suppose you could call it. Um, like you'll pigeon find English, yeah. Basically anywhere that, you know, the British have colonized, right? And the one I was reading specifically was was Hawaiian pigeon. So it's a... Interesting. It's a, it's a mix of English and traditional... Hawaiian words there's some Japanese mixed in there just because of the you know the cultural milieu yeah. that that people living in Hawaii today have have sort of uh worked into their their cultural heritage right and it's it's weird stuff because you read it and it it almost like if you're not familiar with pigeon it almost seems offensive in that it sounds like you're making fun of someone from one of those areas but it's a it's 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 a true dialect. It has all of its own grammatical rules. It has you know like it's it's well established. Yeah. It is its own language. And they I was I was reading uh, a passage from a pigeon Bible, and it's it's so interesting. But most Christians would tell you that you know translation of the Bible. I mean you know since we've gotten over that whole Latin thing, translation of the Bible is really important to. Uh, the spread of Christianity because they mm-hmm. want people to understand it as many people to understand it as possible. So in general, people are pretty pro new translations, even if it is weird nineties jive speak that oh. your grandma thought that you might think was cool. Um, <laughs> wow. That's awkward. Like, like the whole Bible reads like a stay in school speech. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, it's something. Let me tell you, I believe it, but yeah, the, the, they've in, in in general the Mormon Church has been like pretty pretty against translation, 
and they've they've stuck with King James because they think it's more pure, basically, is is the 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 short version there. So they've got King James, but they've also got a book called Doctrine and Covenants, which is a series of lectures and letters about uh, Mormon doctrine, things like that. A lot of this stuff dating back to the founding of the religion, right? There's also a book called uh, Pearl of Great Price. I don't know if you've ever heard of that mm. one. The The title comes from a, from a Bible verse, but it's got a number of things in there. Uh, it's got some Joseph Smith retranslations of portions of the Bible, including the creation story. Okay, yeah. So his own his own translations of them. It's got an autobiography of Joseph Smith, so him writing about his own life and the founding of the religion. So he's still, like, to this day, like, a very central figure to... Oh, we're going to be talking about Joseph Smith yeah. quite a bit. Yeah. Okay. No, he's still quite quite important. And um, it also has their articles of faith in that, which would be the, like, a, like a creed. Okay. So, like, a very well-defined, like, as a Mormon, I believe this, I believe They're this, like, the basic this. tenets of... Yeah, well, it's it's the same as you would find, like, the there's the, the Nicene Creed, which... Um, is very important in Catholic doctrine. I, it, it's it's used in a number of others as well, where it's just like, this is what it means to be Christian. You have to believe this and this and this and this, and it's kind of an expression of faith, right? They, they have their own version in, uh, in Pearl of Great Price. Uh, and then finally, they've got the Book of Mormon, which we're going to be coming back to because that's the one everyone wants to hear all about, and we need to spend a little bit of time on there. But let's stick with what they... Yeah, what's what's different about the Mormons than than your traditional uh, Christian doctrines? The biggest one, and the one that is most problematic for other Christian denominations to accept the Mormons as Christian, is that they're non-trinitarian, which means that they don't believe in the doctrine of God the Father, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit being three aspects of one God. They just believe in the Heavenly Father. They believe in the Heavenly Father, they believe in Jesus Christ, and they believe in the Holy Spirit. God the Father and Jesus both have physical bodies as well as spiritual selves. Okay. And then the Holy Spirit is solely spiritual. They would refer to the three of them as the Godhead, which is basically them saying that the three of them act together with one purpose, but they're not the same being. Okay. Now, that's problematic enough because basically every well-established or well-accepted denomination kind of goes back to some stuff that was established in the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century, one of which is the divinity of Christ, and another of which is the unity of God, that there is only one God. Mm -hmm. So having more than one is a major problem for acceptance, right? Mormons see themselves as Christian because they believe that Jesus Christ is a vehicle of salvation, but... Yeah, most other denominations won't agree with them on that particular point. No. Yeah. Because it's not even just those three that uh, that come into play in their cosmology and their theology. They believe that God the Father is like the literal father of all human spirits, that um, all human spirits exist for a long time before they're born on, on Earth. And Interesting. Yeah. And so we're, we're basically at birth, your spiritual self is being manifested into a physical body. Now, when you die, is there like an element of reincarnation or you're just, uh, you're a spirit before continuation. you have a body and then you just continue on? Yeah, as, as your spiritual self. So there's no real afterlife. You're just going back to. Um, yes and no. I mean, you get into, and again, we're, we're, we're getting into some nitty gritty, but basically 
they believe that like all the all the spirits on earth chose sides in the you know the great battle between Jesus and Lucifer before the world was even created okay. and or or populated I should say so the the basic version of the story is that um you know all of these spirits got together in one room the father said how are we going to make this world work like what do we you know how can we make all of these spirits live the best lives that they possibly can and lucifer comes forward and says i can like make sure that everyone lives a spiritual life by removing everyone's free will and then jesus comes forward and says i think that we can like inspire people to like make good decisions and like make the right choices and by doing that their spiritual well-being will be more meaningful because they've chosen it of their own free will and god the father says i like your version better lucifer revolts becomes the devil and then certain human spirits chose one side or the other or remain neutral in this whole conflict and depending on which side you chose long before uh human beings were created is basically where you're going to end up afterwards because you made your choice and your time on earth is just a very brief window of your existence uh, an eternal existence okay so i can see how this might create some complications right in the future yeah because i mean in in a lot of ways, if you if you are, you know, on the right side in this conflict and you live the best possible life that you can, there is a remote possibility that that you can become basically a version of God the Father on your own planet someday. That you can participate in what they refer to as the celestial creation process. That you can create spirits yourself. What? And uh, this is called exaltation. And like, not everybody gets to do this, but like, you have to live a really good life to do that. And so, you know, joining the church is the the path to that. And, you know, there's, there's other degrees of having, you know, a pretty good afterlife, depending on how well you live. But that's, so a, that's out there. Does the, does Lucifer and Jesus have their own planets? Well, no, they're, they're working on, on earth. On this one. Yeah. And so then the question is like, well, if God the Father is like a spiritual father to Jesus and to all of us, what makes Jesus different? Jesus' physical body was fathered by God the Father's physical body. So he's like the real deal. He's both. Okay. Yeah. Uh, physical and spiritual offspring. And that's how the dual nature of, of Jesus works in, gotcha. in that theology. Yeah, it's, it's, it's different. It's very different. And I mean, it leaves open, number one, the possibility of other gods who basically the, the church would deem pretty much irrelevant to your salvation. Like yeah. it doesn't matter what's happening elsewhere in the cosmos because this is the, yeah, this is the not, choice that matters. They, so they, they kind of look at it as like, it's kind of an unimportant point. Like maybe there is, maybe there isn't. Almost certainly we there is, but it's completely irrelevant. Yeah. We shouldn't bother ourselves with that. Yeah. Thinking about it because it's not relevant to our personal exactly. salvation. It also opens the door to a mother spirit. Interesting. So, so do they have a feminine God as well in this? It's a contentious issue within the church because logic dictates that there basically has to be. Yeah. But on the other hand, there have been members that have gotten into trouble by like getting in too deep on some of that stuff. Like, yeah, the Mormon church isn't exactly well known for its progressive stance, values stance in terms of women. Yeah. And there, there have been, you know, uh, female professors at Brigham Young and things like that who have lost positions over, you know, promotion of let's pay a little more attention to God the Mother, which is unfortunate. But it's it's a really interesting theological point. 
Well, and I, I think it's consistent with what other, with some other judo Christian sects also believe. Yeah, it's 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 fairly uncommon. I mean, you know, most of them are pretty, pretty firmly monotheistic yeah. here. But yeah, it, it's it it is an interesting point. But again, it keeps that distance between them and any other Christian denominations that they they don't they don't quite yeah, get into that club. Yeah, this isn't even being discussed. No, that's interesting. Hmm. I guess the final point I would mention is that they, they don't have a concept of original sin. People aren't born with some sort of prior debt to pay off. Basically, they believe that, you know, it's hard enough working on your own sinful nature. Like, you don't need to pay for your ancestors. Basically. So, in terms of, like, the Garden of Eden story, they don't necessarily believe that Eve doomed us all sort of thing? Well, in fact, they, they suggest that the fall is necessary for the, 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 the salvation, continuation yeah. of, of mankind. Um, because it's necessary for procreation. But they believe that, you know, we're all going to screw up badly enough ourselves that we still definitely need to work on our own salvation. Okay. We're just not paying an ancient debt. You're not accountable for your own salvation until the age of eight. They believe anyone younger than that has a pure soul. If someone dies younger than eight, they are automatically allowed into heaven. Do they Do they baptize? Adult baptism. Okay. And then uh, they also believe that animals have souls and they'll be in heaven. Interesting. Yeah. They're the same as children, basically. Man, open concept religions are way more fascinating than yeah. closed concept. There's so much more they've thought about. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of interesting. Well, and it, it shows that, you know, it's a very new religion, relatively speaking, that, you know, they've they've looked at other denominations who have had hard questions like, hey, do animals have souls? And realize like, yeah, we should probably talk about this. Yeah. There, there's other more modern points that they've kind of weighed in on that... I was kind of surprised at how accommodating they were, given their reputation, basically, for conservatism. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, they don't really have any problems with evolution. It took them a while to get there. But by the 30s, they were basically saying, you know what? It's not as important to us how God created the earth as the fact that he did and that people aren't having a problem with that. Yeah. If it means that he did it by evolution and that's what the, that's what the fossil record is saying and that's what science is saying then I guess that's how he did it. And that's pretty great anyways, Mm -hmm. which, you know, compared to some other American Protestant traditions is is pretty open. Yeah. Man, they just finished that arc. eh? Yeah. (sighs) Ken Ham. Very, very literal guy. Anyways, we don't need to talk about Ken Ham. Also in terms of um, homosexuality. No, they're not that great about it. However, they don't actually believe that Number one, they don't believe that it's a choice. They believe that it is part of your nature and that someone who is homosexual is like analogous to somebody who has, say, like a genetic disease or something like that, which is a terrible way to talk about it, by the way. But, you know, you're not going to get the same sort of, you know, reprogramming camps type thing. Yeah, there's Um, no like pray away the gay. There is some of that stuff because they believe that, you know, things can be like cured okay but at least they're not and and i mean this is a slim slim bit of ledge that i'm clinging on to okay but at least they're not saying that like yeah you know gay people choose this lifestyle you know and and they're not putting the onus on them no all right so still not great but again they're up against some interesting uh competition with uh with some of the very very literal Southern Baptist and Methodist traditions where this stuff is tolerated even less. 
And I, I guess, I guess I always had a bit of a more strict impression of the Mormon church on stuff like this. Um, and I was surprised to see that like, they're, they're slightly more reasonable than I was really expecting when I got into like some of the nitty gritty. Well, from what I've heard, like, like Salt Lake city is apparently a pretty liberal place in in some aspects that's the thing it's like on some things it's very very progressive very forward things like uh social safety nets are yeah like it's very different from the maybe like midwest and deep south yeah where it's like you know religion and conservatism are very intertwined but on the other hand it can be a pretty severe place on on certain other things like it's so it's so issue dependent that but it's not quite the like left right divide that you think it would be. Yeah, Sometimes things are it's not nearly as much of a hard line. Yeah. Okay. It's it's kind of an interesting uh culture. And that's that's another thing I found out. They they inc- they encourage something called uh cultural Mormonism, which is acknowledging that like you might not be into every single aspect of their theology, but try kind of living like a Mormon would live for a while and see how it tr- how it treats you. They're fine with that. Like they'd rather people did that, even if they don't believe in all of the stuff for the church, yeah. Uh, than nothing at all. So you know, try following the the commandments and try you know abstinence from any you know try not drinking coffee for and, a year. See how it goes for you. Yeah, basically, with with the understanding that like you know maybe if people get into the habits of the faith, maybe that'll get them more interested in the in the philosophies and the theologies of it. Okay, but it's it's an unorthodox. Uh, tactic yeah it's not quite as hard line as like you're either in or you're out there's some wiggle room there okay and i mean once you're in then it does kind of turn into yeah there's there's lots of stories of people being essentially exiled from the church but that's that's a completely different issue oh yeah i i hear a lot about people get excommunicated all the time yeah i guess that brings us to the book of mormon itself it's considered by that church to be Another testament of Jesus Christ. So it's right up there with the the other Gospels uh, in importance. And I bought a copy and I I tried reading it, Gary. I tried <laughs> so hard to read that thing. I was convinced I'd be able to do it by the time we recorded. No. You couldn't make it through, eh? It's a difficult read. It's, is it a thick read? It's... Because when I think like book of the Bible, I'm thinking like, okay, that's like what, 40 pages? No, it's, it's, there's several hundred pages. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's like, oh, tome. it's beefy. It's beefy and it's got the double columns just like a, oh, shoot. Just like any other Bible you've ever seen. Size nine print. Yep. Okay. Chapters and verses. Gotcha. Biggest problem for me trying to read it is that they say, and it came to pass, like, Probably 60% of the verses start that way. Huh. And it came to pass that he left his father's tent. And it came to pass that he saw an angel standing there. And it came to pass that he was mightily afraid. And it's like, I feel like this could be like 100 pages shorter. <laughs> Get to the point. And it's like, it's clearly somebody, for, for whatever reason, it, it's, it's clearly stylistically very similar to something like the King James version of the Bible where yeah. there's a lot of like flowery, very flowery. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But I don't think it works as well as something as kind of worked over as the King James Bible has been. Yeah. But anyways, I, yeah. I didn't get through it. So the, the, the teen teen Bible for youths was quite a bit 
<laughs> smaller than the King James version. Well, that's because kids these days don't read. Yeah, that's true. You know, you had to get back to your skateboarding and your pog, I guess. Oh yeah, pogs, hockey cards. Sure, why not? I mean, these days, I'm sure they've got Book of Mormon app. And, oh, uh, I guarantee it. I didn't even think of that, but man, I should probably look into that. Anyways, audiobook. Audiobook, good call. The Book of Mormon essentially is a story of uh, a family that left uh, Jerusalem about 6th century BCE, and which is just before it fell to the Babylonians, okay. which is significant in that there are certain faiths that kind of tra- uh, track like the quote-unquote fall of the the Jewish people to their it's kind subjugation. Of like the, the takeover from Babylon, as I understand it, was kind of like the destruction of ancient Judaism. There, 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 there's there certainly like an end lost. of a golden era at that yeah. point. And, and I think that's that's where, you know, that, that date becomes very significant just before the, uh, the, kid, uh, the capture by Babylon. So this family leaves Jerusalem and end up after this, this journey uh, coming to America by ship. Okay. And after some time and, uh, you know, they, they, they spread, they have you know, many, many children. Mul- and it came to pass that they did multiply. They did multiply and they split into two groups called the Nephites and the Lamanites. And, you know, these two people would war with one another and, you know, whatever. They okay. had lots of differences. Blood feuds. As people do. Yeah. But then, just after the resurrection, Jesus reappeared in America okay. to the Nephites and the Lamanites. And Jesus in the Book of Mormon says a lot of the same sort of things that Jesus says in the Bible. There's very little in there that's new enough to make comment on really so it's a lot of sermon on the mount type type business be excellent to each other be excellent to one another one of the things that he does say is that you know this land meaning america is unique because the people here have the chance to make a fresh start for themselves oh yeah there's something insert jesus into that founding myth of america very that sounds great very special about america you could even call it I suppose one word you could use is exceptional. <laughs> Anyways, Jesus finishes up. He's reunited the, the Nephites and the Lamanites. They're getting along great. He he ascends into heaven. And it's this beginning of like a peaceful utopian society, like this this golden age in, in North America, uh, specifically New York State. And okay. Everyone is excellent to one another for a while. But eventually they fall back into their warlike ways. There's some like there's there's some religious constraints on violence that are more observed by the Nephites, basically. Okay. Um, but the Lamanites end up being more warlike. And Mormon, the person that this book is named after, was a Nephite uh, elder. He was a historian, so he you know kept track of all of this entire story, right? As a, as a sort of um, I suppose you could call him tribal historian, almost keeping a record of everything that right. had ever happened to them. Um, but he was also a, you know, a leader and a, and, you know, when he's writing this book, uh, they're in the middle of this massive war with the Lamanites. And so he recorded the history up until that moment on these golden plates in a, a dialect known as reformed Egyptian. Reformed Egyptian. Yeah. And, the last part of the book 
is finished by Mormon's son, Moroni. And he finishes by telling uh, in the book how Mormon went off to lead this this battle and he was killed in battle. And the, the Nephites were essentially wiped out in this battle. And Moroni was the last remaining Nephite and he's finishing off this book. And in order to keep the, the story of what had happened to his people safe, he took these golden plates and he buried it in a stone box okay. uh, in a hillside. And that's where it ends. And, and this, this destruction of the Nephites would have happened. Uh, they, they date it pretty, actually pretty accurately to 385 or so. Okay. Um, common era. And after this destruction, the Lamanites, according to the book, were like, and this is this is one of those things where we have to keep in mind that the Book of Mormon was written in the 1820s. And so we get some, not only the, the awkward American, American exceptionalism stuff, but also the, the, the racial superiority stuff Uh-oh. gets real heavy in there. Oh, no. The Lamanites' uh, skin was darkened. Oh, no. As a consequence of this battle. And... Up until relatively recently, the Lamanites were considered by the Mormons to be the forefathers of the Native Americans. Okay. So this is actually a thing that I think we talked about last time when we did the Reformation is this problem, quote unquote, of the Native Americans that they didn't fit into this into biblical worldview yeah. world of, you know, how did they get there? If there was a flood and it killed everyone but Noah and his three sons and his wife and his son's wives... Um, where did the the Native Americans come from? Because tradition dictated that one son became the ancestor of all Asians, one became the ancestor of all Africans, and one the ancestor of all Europeans. That doesn't allow for the New World. Yeah. The Book of Mormon has an answer for that. Okay. So, there you go. And that's that's basically what's in there. There's lots of other stuff in there. It's, as I said, a very long read and, and you know, very important religious document so you know i don't want to make light of it but that's that's really what the book of mormon is all about and i think it says a lot about what the people who were founding uh mormonism really latched on to right it's it, it says a lot about you know this uh this drive to expand across the entire continent about the um the righteousness of expanding across the entire continent uh it also says uh, a little something about the the worthiness of the native americans to be there um yeah which is very convenient for them and very problematic at this point in history so we so we've got these golden plates yeah and they've been sitting in a hillside just waiting for the right person and who who is this right person well fortunately along comes a man named joseph smith and i think this is a fantastic place to take a break because afterwards we're going to talk a whole bunch about this guy and finding the golden plates all right. And, uh, we'll be right back. Okay, we're back on HI101 here with Gary Hallman. All right, let's talk about Joseph Smith. <laughs> You're so gung-ho. Oh, yeah. Usually I do a quick check-in. I've heard crazy stories. Joseph Smith, I feel like, you know how sometimes when stuff is being discussed, somebody will take like, a word cloud of like frequency that certain words are used in like articles about that thing or, or, you know, what's, what's the biggest word? I think I, I, this is speculation on my part, but I think that a word that even, even devout Mormons could agree on in this particular case is controversial. Okay. 
Joseph Smith is one of the most controversial people I've come across in a long, long time because how I, you know, there's, there's so many different ways that you could read this guy that even, even a lot of, I shouldn't say a lot of, even some modern day Mormons, like they have significant problems with the narrative around Joseph Smith. And, and before we start to get into this guy, I think, you know, one thing that, that I think is important to note here is we're talking about these events happening in a time where record keeping is so much better than any other point in history. Absolutely. So, you know, when we talk, when last time we were talking about the Reformation, like a lot of the people we were talking about still had strong oral traditions. Like a lot of them didn't know how to read. A lot of them didn't know how to write. So yep. you're basically taking it on people's word that a lot of this stuff was said where, you know, one of the interesting things about Mormonism is that we have all this fact to go off of. We've got birth certificates, death certificates, mm-hmm. you know, firsthand accounts that were written down by people. Yeah. Not and too I long think, into the history. We've got photographs. Like, yeah. So I think when we're talking about, you know, controversy, I, I would be interested to see how a lot of these controversial figures would, you know, stack side by side other big leaders in history. And I, well, I'd like to, you know, think that it probably wouldn't be all that much more controversial, but Hey, who well, knows? Maybe we'll find out. And and the thing is, and the thing is, is there that, you know, the, the controversy surrounding the personal life of Joseph Smith, again, this, this comes into like the, the, the issues about talking about religion in a historical context doesn't necessarily say anything about the validity or lack thereof of his, you know, of any religious revelations that he makes, right? That isn't like it, you, you get into such a, you get into such a pedantic argument with some of this stuff that it's, it's, it's clear from other spots in history that something can both have a kind of mundane explanation and be divinely inspired or like considered yeah. both things by different camps. I mean, look at the number of times where people point to, you know, for example, you'll you'll see stuff along the lines of, uh, you know, oh, Joan of Arc had epilepsy, and that's where her divine visions came from. Okay, but she's still considered a saint, and she still, you know, did a lot of work for the church, and a lot of people still really respect her, and it doesn't really matter, like, how those visions came around, they yeah. still believe that they could be divinely inspired. inspired. And it doesn't matter, right? And that's why it's really important to kind of keep that sort of judgment out of these conversations. It doesn't really matter if, if if this is if this is something that is that important to you religiously you'll find you'll find a way to reconcile it with your beliefs right yeah so it's okay for us to just kind of talk about the facts and even our own reactions to it okay so we we've had a lengthy preamble here so oh, i'm thinking goodness. the controversy is going to be mighty controversial i think the problem with joseph smith in general is that he reads like someone that if he lived a hundred years later than he actually did, maybe 120, uh, we would have ended up with a Jonestown situation on our hands. Oh no. I think that's really what it comes down to. And I'm not sure if that says more about Joseph Smith or if it says more about, you know, some of these, you know, seventies charismatic cult leaders. So I'm, there's definitely like a cult of personality to start off here. Yeah. Let's let's start from the beginning. Okay. We'll yeah. work our way through. It's it's more about like where all of this stuff is eventually going to go. Okay. Because you know, even even today the the definition between 
you know, religion and cult gets like a little hazy at certain points. Well, it's good. I, I think the strictest definition is it's got a lot more to do with size than anything else. I, well, I, I, I would, I would argue that there's a, you know, more to do with the exploitation end of things than, than, uh, than necessarily size, but you know, it's, it's again, it's that, well, that's the problem is coming up with a standardized definition, right? Yeah. And with, with Mormonism, is it that, you know, this was never a cult to begin with and it just kind of shared some of the hallmarks of it? Or is it that, you know, you could have originally considered it a cult and it became more than what it originally was. And, you know, through uh, the faith and hard work of its members, you know, legitimized itself over time. I, yeah. like, I don't have a good answer for that. And in the context of history, I'm not really required to give one. So probably won't. <laughs> but let's start off. Joseph Smith. He's born 1805, two nights before Christmas in Sharon, Vermont. But by the time he's, you know, 12 or so, they've moved to uh, a town called Palmyra in New York, which is in this burned out district of New York, right? Okay. So this is, you know, Hot smack bed. dab in the middle of the, you know, the second wave, all of these revivals going on. Conditions he, are perfect. Yeah, he's, he's, he's steeped in this tradition of charismatic uh, evangelism. And he started off his life actually really interested in this stuff. But here he ran into a problem, which I would imagine was relatively common at that point in time, was that he started getting confused by some of these competing claims. He had a lot of people telling him like a lot of stuff and didn't really know how to figure out which one was the right one. Because you have all these ministers traveling through and within the burned out district. And I should mention, by the way. The burned out district was notable more because people wrote about it than that it was unusually steeped in this um, tent revival style. So it style. had like a well-known reputation. It did, but it's not as though other areas of the United States weren't going through the same thing. They absolutely were, and they were just as starved for converts. But like, it gets to a certain point where it's like, well, who are you converting and from what? So eventually you get these competing groups where, well, it's like anything, you know, if you want to grow your share... Eventually, you're going to reach the point where you can't bring in new people, so you got to steal other people's people. There's a limit on the number of people there are. That's just a cold, yeah. hard fact. So, yeah, I mean, these these groups are competing with each other for members at this point. It's not as though people haven't found religion. It's that people haven't found your religion. You want to fix that when you're one of these traveling ministers, right? Okay, so we're getting into an age where it's, it's more competitive. Absolutely. He would later claim that in 1820, he had his first vision. And this was really important, or this is really important to uh, members of the Mormon church, because this vision was of God the Father and Jesus Christ telling him that no existing religions were correct and that he would have to find a new way, like the correct way. And for them, that's the moment where like, the church returns to earth, because there's a gap between you know, the first century CE and 1820, where there was no legitimate church on earth. Yeah, like this moment of divine inspiration, I guess, then is the catalyst for the new church. Exactly. Okay. Now, I mean, he wouldn't talk about this moment until far later in his life, but that doesn't really matter that that, you know, that, that moment is still considered incredibly important. Okay. In 1823, he claimed that he had his first visit from an angel. And this angel was uh, Moroni, who was the, the angel of the last Okay, so he's, he's an angel now. Yes, he had become an angel, and he came and visited Joseph Smith. 
and told him where to find these golden plates. And so Joseph Smith went out and it was very near his house. So I guess he lucked out that way. And he went to the the hillside and he dug down. He found the stone box and inside he found a number of things, including these golden plates and a breastplate, like a like a piece of armor that had a couple of stones set in it. And these are called the uh, the Urim and the Thummim. And these were seeing stones. And this is important because these were um, uh, Hebrew artifacts. They appear in the Bible and okay. they were used for divination. So. Generally, it was believed that these were lost during the Babylonian uh, conquest. Uh-huh. But according to the Mormons, they actually so traveled they with still, the Nephites. I'm going to take a wild guess and say that they have these artifacts still today, but they don't show them to anybody. We'll, yeah, we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more. But the, um, the stones, they do... Sorry. No, they don't have those two stones. They have another one of Joseph Smith's seeing stones. Okay. And it's one that he used for part of the translation. Okay. The plates will be given back to Moroni once the translation is finished. Okay. But we'll talk a little bit more about Okay, so we've got the plates. And things like that. So he's not allowed to take the plates away from the, the, the hillside, though. Uh, Moroni won't let him. He doesn't want, you know, the, the, the people who are not specifically selected for this to see them. Um, because they're holy relics. So after that, once a year, Joseph Smith goes back to the hillside and once a year Moroni appears to him and shows him the plates and lets him look at them, but won't la- let him take them away. And eventually the the Moroni is going to let him actually take them home with him because Joseph Smith basically says to him, listen, I can't do what you're asking me to do, namely translate these plates without actually having them for like some length of time to like work on this. And so eventually Moroni agrees in 1827 to let him take the plates home. Now, in terms of like Joseph Smith's life outside of all of this, because this is, you know, we just blew past a five-year period, both he and his father were working at this point in time as treasure seekers, which sounds like a made-up job, but in this sort of, this, this atmosphere of, of um, spiritualism, you get kind of the high watermark of some of these like folk magic style practices in the united states so things like dowsing rods for finding water to dig a well was really big there's some medium work in terms of contacting the dead that would get bigger later on in the 19th century but you have the start of that stuff okay and you have people working with seer stones and people with seer stones would either help people find things that they'd lost so you know i'm i lost my checkbook i have no idea where i got to I could turn my house upside down or I could go to Joseph Smith and say, you know, hey, can you help me find this? And he'll say, sure, for a couple of dollars, I'll look at my seer stone and I'll figure out where you lost it. And he'd help you find it. It's Joseph Smith Jr., by the way. His father was also Joseph Smith. Okay. Generally, uh, we just call him Joseph Smith because he's far more important than his dad ever was. Okay. (laughs) Sorry, Joseph Smith Sr. Didn't quite make the cut. Great kid, though. Great kid. So, I mean, he was already fairly familiar with the concept of using seer stones. Okay. So the idea of, of finding Urim and Thummim to, which, which the angel told him were to be used for the translation, that kind of seeps in from his outside life. At the very least, he was familiar with using seer stones. So this okay. was going to be, he was the man for this job. He had the tools. He had the know-how. 
he takes the plates home with him. He's forbidden from actually showing it to anybody without explicit permission from Moroni. So he keeps it, you know, hidden first in a in a treasure chest and then when he realizes that that's kind of like really awkward and like like obvious that it's something valuable he starts hiding it other places as well and at this point in time he marries a woman named emma hale and she says well basically her father says i don't want you marrying a treasure hunter that's you know sketchy and also very like inconsistent in terms of income you know i want better for my daughter so Smith agrees to stop treasure hunting, and this is about the same time that he takes the plates home with him. So it's kind of convenient that he's not running around outside anymore, but so be it. The timing worked out for him. Okay. They move a little ways away to Oakland, Pennsylvania. They they start a small uh, farm there. Basically, they were having some trouble with some of his old treasure hunter buddies because they heard that he had these golden plates, and they thought that he was holding out on them. They thought that he had found something big and wasn't splitting it into shares for them. So okay. they moved out of town to avoid trouble. He starts working on these translations, like, constantly. Takes him a long time. But the thing is, he can't translate while writing. Like, it's just too much stuff going on. So he starts hiring scribes, and the first scribe that he hires is a man named Martin Harris. It's one of their neighbors from back in uh, in New York. And Harris is relatively well-to-do. All, or well-to-do. He's not incredibly wealthy, but compared to the Smiths, he's he's got some he's cash to play with. And so... Martin, he, he's con- he's convinced Martin that like uh, Martin Harris that this is the real deal, and so he gets Martin Harris to write while he dictates out what he's reading through the seer stones. Now, the way this would work generally is that he would put the two stones in the bottom of his hat, and he would stick his hat over his face to shut out all the light. Okay. Because when it was completely dark, the seer stones would allow him to see what looked like a parchment, and then he would see the reformed Egyptian text from the from the plates appear on this vision of a parchment and below it he would see like a word for word english translation of it so does he still he's still got the plates at this point he does have the plates and he'll keep them in like a sack nearby but he doesn't allow harris to see them okay and so he reads out the english translation and harris is sitting there writing out whatever he reads now he's he's like full like he's all the way into this right harris i mean he's he's completely buying into this his wife lucy she had her doubts. She thought Smith was full of it. And she thought Smith was trying to take them for a ride for their cash. Okay. To the point that at one point she went with Harris out to Pennsylvania to see the Smiths. And she searched the entire homestead trying to find the plates. And she couldn't find them anywhere. And she confronted Joseph Smith about this. And Smith's answer was that they were too valuable to just keep lying about that he had hidden them off in the woods somewhere and that he didn't actually need them to do the translations. He just needed them nearby because the seer stones would allow him to see the text from the plates and see the translations. Okay. So, you know, that explains that Lucy didn't buy it at all. She was very, very, you know, wary of this whole situation, but she kind of like worked away at her husband to the point where he started having some doubts and Joseph Smith had actually written out a couple of lines of the actual reformed Egyptian. And so he took some of this to a university professor to have it analyzed. And he says, or he claimed that initially the professor confirmed it as being an Egyptian dialect. But once Harris mentioned that the way that he had gotten this was through divine revelation from an angel that this professor recanted. 
So obviously there's no actual uh, record of any, you know, confirmation of these plates. The other thing is he convinced Smith to take the manuscript with him. And when he was home with his wife, this first 116 pages of the manuscript went missing. Shoot. Best guess is that Lucy took them. Um, She seemed to believe that if she intentionally hid the pages, it would out Smith as a fraud because you would just go back to Smith and say, okay, well, not a big deal. We'll just start translating again from the beginning and it should match up word for word. Lucy was smart. That makes some sense. The day that the, that the pages went missing, or sorry, not the day of, the next day, Smith, who, whose wife was pregnant, uh, lost a son. He was born malformed and, and died the next day. And his wife, Emma, almost died at the same time. He saw this, or at least told Harris that he saw this, as divine punishment for losing those manuscript pages. He also told Harris that Moroni had taken back the plates and revoked his ability to translate. So things are not looking good for Joseph Smith. Well, I mean, he has a lot of explanations, but he did also just lose a child. Yeah. It's a pretty rough time in his life. Yeah. He's yeah. questioning a lot of things about his own faith. Gotcha. So this is in June uh, 1828. The plates were finally returned again in September. Moroni changed his mind, decided that the work was more important, gave him back the plates. But Smith started working from a different section of the, the plates. Basically, he was told that that section was sealed and that another section included a, basically like an abridged version or like a summary of what he had done so far. So it wasn't necessary to redo them. So, again, works out well for him, I guess. OK. You know, it, it's stuff like yeah. this that make people very, very suspicious of Joseph it's, Smith. It's for, all very convenient. For good reason. Yeah. They continue working along. But Joseph Smith doesn't really trust Harris anymore after he lost 116 pages of yeah. the manuscript. For, and so, yeah, for good reason. He, I mean, he has some harsh words for Harris and he ends up hiring a new scribe, a, a guy named Whitmer. And they start just like going to town on this, uh, this translation. And they finished by July uh, 1st, 1829. So basically they spent a full uh, 10 months working at nothing but translating out these, these plates. Now the plates were shown to three witnesses and Martin Harris was one of them. So he saw the plates as did David Whitmer and Oliver Cowdery or Cowdery. I never found a pronunciation on that. I'll look it up later. Okay. Um, I, I assumed it was Cowdery. But anyways, these three guys saw the plates and they signed statements saying that they had seen the plates, that they were real, that Joseph Smith was the real deal. Um, he would also later get uh, another set of people known as the eight witnesses uh, to see them, to actually pick them up and hold them and like see like how heavy they were, like touch, touch yeah. the plates, turn the... The pages. I, I didn't really de- describe these plates. They were not. They were. They were likely not actual gold. They were too light to be real gold. But they were a series of like fairly thin, beaten metal pages, uh, about eight inches by ten inches, and they were bound with like a D-ring binder clip kind of thing, so that it could be turned like a book. Okay. Um, and covered on both sides with these uh, reformed Egyptian characters um, that had been sort of rubbed with a, a stain so that the that the engraved characters would stand out more. Like they look kind of black against the uh the gold plates. Or that's what all of the uh the descriptions of them describe them as at least. So they finished up the translation. Moroni comes and takes back the the plates. He's got his witnesses and his signed statements saying that yes they're real. And they go to work on getting this thing published. 
and Smith can't, he can't afford it. Uh, he doesn't have the money to, uh, to translate it. And so he goes to Harris once more. He's kind of made some amends there. And he goes, listen, can you help me out with this? We're going to make so much money once this thing is actually published, but I can't handle the upfront costs. Can you help me out? Which is kind of the thing that his wife had been warning him about the entire time. Yeah. But Harris went like, you know what? Okay, fine. I'll help you out. And he mortgages out his entire farm and gives Smith $3,000 to finance publishing this. Now, this is one of those things where you hear $3,000 and it's like, okay, you know what? Like if I had a friend who had like a really good business idea, like I might be able to scrape together. Yeah. What would that be in like today's, today's money? Yeah. I looked it up. Okay. I needed to know. Good. good. I needed to know. It was nearly $68,000. That's a big loan. Yeah. Uh, He never got that money back. Oh, shoot. Yep. It was finally published uh, March 26th, 1830. And it was a financial disaster. They didn't sell any of those things. A couple of days later, April 6th, uh, they established what they called the Church of Christ. Uh, It was apparently very important that it be called Church of Christ, like have the name Christ in the name of the church, which was actually fairly common uh, for some of these second wave churches that they want like the name of Jesus somewhere in the name of the church, Mm -hmm. like to go back to those basics. Coterie and Smith baptize each other on the instructions of Smith's translation and uh, are like the first priests of this new church. And they start attracting members to, to their flock. Now, a bunch of local people remember Smith from his treasure hunting days and they thought he was a charlatan. They thought that this was all a big scam. They thought he was a massive flake. Yeah. And they didn't like that he was trying to attract impressionable people to his new church because they thought it was it was a bunch of baloney. So he ended up actually getting run out of town as a uh, uh, disorderly person. Okay. That's what they called it, a disorderly wow. person. That's a very polite name for a very terrible action. Well, they, you know, I, I like the idea that that's a... That's a a thing on the law books that you can get you know turned out of your home for yeah so he leaves fine good enough and he starts heading west to find a new place to live now in this early period of the church he actually gets some threat to his leadership from other members like crowley and harris who start claiming that they're also really receiving revelations directly from angels or sometimes in certain cases, directly from God. And this is all well and good until some of these revelations start contradicting with things that Smith has said. Because all of a sudden you get into this whole system of, you know, Joseph Smith saying, you know, Jesus told me that I, you know, we should be doing this next. Like we should, every member of this church should be tithing 10% of their income to the church. And someone else saying, you know, well, you know, Jesus told me that I don't have to tithe to anyone that I don't want to. Okay. And I'm making up that example. Yeah, yeah. No, but I see what you mean. So lots of personal conflicts end up. Well, and it's a hallmark of this this era of um, of charismatic Christianity, where personal revelation is incredibly important to your person or to your spiritual life. So Smith kind of went like, "How do I how do I deal with this? This is not good." And so what he did was he got out ahead of the eight ball. And he said, well, I was just having a chat with God. And he said that I am a divine prophet 
that the revel that my revelation of the Book of Mormon is, you know, basically puts me in the same league as, you know, Moses or any of these other, you know, patriarchs of the church. And that I should also warn all of you that just because you're hearing voices from the supernatural doesn't mean that they're coming from God. There are other supernatural voices out there that everyone needs to be mindful of. Yeah. Like, keep that in mind. Just because you're getting these revelations doesn't mean they're coming from the right person. So just food for thought, everybody. I'm a prophet. Also, be careful. Okay, so he's he's out in in front of the ball now. That's a solid bid for for leadership. And um, it's kind of hard to top that. Some of these, like, early troublemakers, he says to them, listen, I've been told that we need to found a new Zion, a new, a new Jerusalem. Zionism is a funny and kind of somewhat amorphic concept in a lot of these movements. Basically, the idea is founding a new Jerusalem with a new temple that needs to be there before uh, the millennium can kind of come about, like the the apocalypse, the end times, which is necessary for the second coming of Christ. And so he's got some of these Zionistic ideas going on in Mormonism. And he says, well, obviously it's going to be here in America, but we just got to find it. So go West guys. So he sends a number of these troublemakers, including Coterie. Uh, he sends them out to number one, convert as many people as possible, especially uh, native Americans, if he can. And number two, keep an eye out for the site of this new Zion. Because Joseph Smith needs a new place to live. He's got, he's got to leave. He's being run out as a disorderly person. And he figures, well, why not, you know, use this as an opportunity to grow my church at the same time. Mm -hmm. So let's do all of this at once and let's get rid of the worst dissenting voices by making them the vanguards of this entire move West. Say what you will about the guy. He was clever. He was very clever. He, he, he worked this early, a uh, very vulnerable stage of the church quite deftly. Yeah, he's clearly got like a a natural leadership streak. Yeah. Absolutely. One thing he wasn't the best at, not that he was necessarily bad at it, but one thing that he was somewhat lacking in was like his preaching ability. He could put on a good sermon, don't get me wrong. But this is the burned out district. And they've they've some, heard it all. Oh, they've heard every sermon they know a good preacher when they hear it you know who else knew a good preacher when they heard it coterie because he found this guy named sydney rigdon and he found him in kirtland ohio and rigdon was preaching up a storm he had a bunch of followers he was working on his own little you know side gig church bible only charismatic leader style Mm -hmm. uh you know outfit out there and Cowdery talked to him, gave him a copy of the Book of Mormon, uh, and he convinced him to convert to Mormonism. And Rigdon said, yeah, let's, let's do that. I'm in. And he got all of his followers, nearly 100 people, which early days of a church like this is huge, especially in this area. A 100-person uh, uh, group is massive because most of these churches are, you know, little parishes of, of, you know, a couple dozen people, maybe. Yeah. They're not, they're not these big organizations like we think of now. They're, they're region specific. It's one building, one guy leading them. Right. So all of a sudden they get this infusion of over a hundred people with this 
incredibly charismatic, uh, very, you know, sort of animal attraction style preacher uh, out in Ohio. And so Smith said, you know what, everyone? I think we found it. I think that the New Jerusalem is Kirtland, Ohio. Kirtland, Ohio. And so he picked up his entire family. He talked to every single follower that he had, and they all left for Ohio because that's going to be the New Jerusalem. <sighs> if only they would, if only they would know. Actually, Ohio's not bad. Ohio's nice. Nothing wrong with Ohio. Some decent country right there. Yeah. I think, you know what? Our church has started. It's done a little bit of growing up. It's left the nest. It's on a journey now. I think this is probably a really good place to take a break. And, you know, when uh, when we come back next time, it's got nothing but growing to do. All right. So looking forward to that. Other than the Book of Mormon itself and an overall incorporation of ideas of American exceptionalism into its doctrine, the very first years of the Church of Jesus Christ of the Latter-day Saints really didn't have much to distinguish it from countless other small, charismatic groups to come out of the Second Great Awakening. It was only through a long and difficult journey, both literally and spiritually, that Joseph Smith would refine these ideas into the Mormon Church as it would come to be known. Next time, we'll talk about that refinement, as well as the constant rejection and animosity faced by the church in its first century. That episode will be up on August 15th. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.